Welcome to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Reynolds, and I'm here with uh, a very special person uh, whose nickname is actually Mouth Breather Marks. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Eric. Thanks for that introduction, man. How are you doing? Pretty good. You did Before we were doing, when Mike checks, he was a little too close to the mic, and he, start, he started breathing. I don't know he what you're told- talking about. He actually told me that in high school he was called mouth breather, and was that true, or were you just making that up? No, I make up a, a lot of nicknames. I did have one nickname in high school, but I'm not going to say that here. Uh, yeah, here we go. There we go again. I did hear though that if you intentionally breathe through your nose, it's like better for everything in your life. Like if you let yourself breathe through your mouth, like you lose the ability to breathe through your nose over the course of a couple decades. So it's a real problem. You should think about it. I can't <laughs> vouch for that. <laughs> when you run, you run a lot, right? I, I am a runner, yes. Yeah. Do you breathe through your nose or through your mouth when you run or both? Um, you breathe through your nose. It's actually interesting. Running and swimming is opposite, right? When you're running, you breathe through your nose, out through your mouth. When you're swimming, mm-hmm. you're breathing through your mouth, out through your nose. So that's how I remember that's right. those. That's right. Yeah. So that's good. Okay. So um, beyond that, everybody who's tuned in has now clicked off this podcast because <laughs> they don't want to hear about mouth breathers and nose breathers and things. But we've got a special guest on today, Dan Lisowski. Uh, and he's got an interesting take on functional safety, safety in general, because he's done a lot of work with the entertainment industry, actually. So how do you do safety for stuntmen, safety for stunt women? It's been something been in the news a lot lately, unfortunately, with uh, some recent tragic events on movie sets involving uh, well-known actors and things like that. I think that one's going to trial right now and being prosecuted and all that sort of stuff. So it's a combination of what I'll call traditional safety, operational risk management, functional safety systems. And I think before we were talking, Dan, uh, you brought up the idea of eliminating the hazard itself. Can you find a way to not have the hazard present at all before you start thinking about an automated system? So Dan, welcome to the the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So where are you sitting right now, Dan? Where I'm at right now, I'm at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I'm uh, an associate professor here in the Department of Theater and Drama. I uh, grew up in the Wisconsin, been here most of my life, except for the couple stints where I went off for graduate school and uh, off to Las Vegas to do a lot of the commercial work that I've been doing. But I grew up in the Milwaukee area, uh, born in West Dallas. Yeah, went to high school in Menominee Falls and then uh, transitioned to UW-Madison for college. Um, while I was in undergraduate, I played football for the Wisconsin Badgers. I did a, a wow. three-year stint with that. And I had two Rose Bowls. I don't normally talk about that stuff, but I um, anticipated that may be interesting and in kind of how I got to where I'm at. Um, then, uh, following graduating from UW-Madison, I went off to Yale University and got my master's degree um, in technical design and production from the Yale School of Drama. Um, while I was an undergrad kind of backpedaling, I did a little bit of, uh, I spent three years as an electrical engineering major and found that the 
career paths inside of electrical engineering were not interesting to me. I just didn't mm -hmm. see myself doing the kind of work that I was seeing from internships or um, in the classroom or in, in talking to people who had graduated that, that didn't really feel like the right fit for me. So three years in, I switched my major to theater and drama and found a way to, to merge those two things together in a, in a career path that I uh, am blessed to have found for someone who has an, a mindset like mine where I'm constantly trying to solve problems. I kind of, I love um, not performing. I'm not a performer in any way, but I like having uh, that excitement and energy of uh, of the live audience in the crowd. I guess that comes from the the football background and the years of of playing sports, kind of bringing that excitement of the the live atmosphere and engineering together. Um, following graduate school from Yale, I went off to. Las Vegas for a number of years, and that's where I have a lot of my professional experience dealing with safety systems and electrical design in entertainment applications. So I worked for a company called Fisher Technical Services, who has been bought by another much larger company now. Um, but we did, uh, we designed and built um, uh, mechanical automation systems and, and control systems for the entertainment industry, whether that was Clients like Cirque du Soleil, um, we also had Disney, Universal Studios, but also some smaller or some uh, normal, normal producing theaters um, as clients. And we worked with them to uh, satisfy the needs that they had either through a, a set of um a set of our stock product offerings, but as well as a lot of custom designed application machinery and automation. So then uh, after about three or four years of that, and after I started uh, adding to the size of my family, uh, we decided to come back into teaching because it was a little bit more stable in the time frame. Uh, it was more nine to five and not as much nine to 10, um, so 13 hour days type of Time frame. So that's where I've been since. I've been here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for 13 years now. Uh, I'm currently an associate professor and I study is my research field, uh, dynamic automation in the entertainment industry. So, Wow. Um, lots of stuff there to think through. I mean, I think any one of those things you just talked about, playing college football, being involved in Las Vegas live shows and doing safety for that. Um, you know, uh, t tons of things that we could talk about there. Uh, really interesting. I don't know if we should go chronologically or top topically. I did think though, that when you said that you work nine to 10, uh, Steven also works nine to 10 uh, AM though. <laughs> yeah. Just one hour. <laughs> just one. We actually talked about that uh, earlier. I said, yeah, just, just got up over here at 3 PM. That's what we do here. Dan, a uh, super diverse background, man. Um, and like Eric said, we can talk about any of these things. Um, Dan and I actually met in Cologne, Germany at a, a TUV Rhineland functional safety course. And we sat next to each other and hearing your background, uh, I was like, this guy's got to be on the podcast. Um, super diverse. Never haven't met anyone, you know, in that industry or anything. So it'll be great. 
One of the interesting things about going to one of those classes, Stephen, did you ever think that you would run into, when you walked into that class, did you ever think, I bet I'm going to meet a theater professor from Wisconsin in Cologne, Germany at this functional safety engineering course? Man, I was surprised when it was another American in the class. And then, I'm, you know, we were talking and it's like, you know, I hear his accent. It's like, oh, he's an American. Okay. Um, and, you know, it, it was cool seeing him. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I was just done doing online classes. I'm following COVID and all, like everything was online. I was just excited to go to Germany and and learn something at, at a really high level. And they put on a really good class and I met some really great people. So I'm excited that we had that opportunity. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's, uh, let's start off with um, uh, athletics, I guess. So Stephen, you played college sports, right? So I bet you can kind of... This, you know, uh, what is it? Connect with him on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's what we first connected with. I don't know if I, I, I think when you told me you played football um, for Wisconsin, that that's what intrigued me the most because of my sports background. Um, but Division Three baseball is uh, nowhere near a Rose Bowl win. Um, so, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, can I ask you what uh, position you played? Absolutely, I played uh, outside linebacker. Is what it would sound like from the. Uh, a normal football terminology. We called it the drop linebacker. Uh, so it was more of a on the line of scrimmage kind of fifth defensive lineman, but that did a lot of pass coverage as well. So, so you were in the big 10, right? Yes. Yes. In the big 10. Back when wow. it was only 11 teams, 11 teams in the big 10. And well, they're back then. Now there's 14. So yeah. Very, and, and more when you start adding the, the West Coast teams that start in the yeah, uh, yeah, all these power conferences these days it just throws everything off. Um, but you were so you were in there in the mid nineties, late nineties, yeah, ninety seven through two thousand. So and that was a it was a it was a good period of Wisconsin athletics. I mean, our our basketball team was making the Final Four in that time frame, um, and we ended up you know, through a lot of hard work and trusting each other, made two Rose Bowls and won both of them in that in that time frame. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm proud of those accomplishments. I don't often talk about them. Um, but I'm like, looking back, it's one of those memories that it's hard to distinguish like women. That's super unique. Right. That's not something everybody went through. No, not everybody like had the same college experience as I did. Um, and in many ways, I had two different college experiences. Right. I had a college experience where I was a football player and an engineer. Um, then I was done playing football. And then I had a college experience as a theater major. Um, and that was much more of a traditional <laughs> um, college experience. So uh, it it's maybe surprising for me that I don't recognize that difference, but it, it's. It was a pretty special time. Yeah, there's another great, uh, great quarterback or a great player uh, that played in the Big Ten in the late '90s, right? Well, there were a number of, of of high profile individuals that played in the Big Ten in the late '90s. Um, did you have a particular person in mind? Do you want me to kind of start listing some? <laughs> yeah, list them, man. I mean, it's it's super cool. You you probably tackled. You got you probably got a sack versus these guys, right? Well, I don't know. Let's not get overexcited. I, the stat sheets would not show that, no. But I, we did, uh, I mean, on our team, Ron Dane was on our team, Heisman Trophy winner, still is, in my mind, the leading rusher in 
NCAA history. They've changed the rules since when he played to include bowl games. So now he technically is not by the NCAA rule books. But if they included the bowl game rushing yards for Andre, and he would still be the number one. So he's still the leading rushing leader in my mind, um, Heisman Trophy winner. But the right, it's somewhat mind boggling to me that there are still, well, there's still at least one player that is in the NFL still, well, as of last month that we played against. So I think the individual specifically referring to is Tom Brady. Tom Brady was the quarterback at Michigan when I, we played against them in the late 90s. You said he's still playing. Is that right? Well, <laughs> depends when this podcast comes out. Right? It could, could come or go. Um, that's a, a day-to-day. But the reality that he's even in anywhere near a good enough shape to continue to do that is is astounding. Um, mm-hmm. But he... He was not the primary threat that we worried about, right? At Michigan, like he was not like, oh, we have to stop Tom Brady. We can't win unless we stop Tom Brady, right? It was running game. Back in those days, college football was run heavy, right? Run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, and then play action pass. Well, um, that's what ended up beating us against Michigan, the play action pass, (laughs) uh, to be honest. Uh, He... Yeah, was a game manager, but he did enough to kind of still win the games there and, you know, found a way to potentially be the best quarterback of all time um, in the NFL. So we were not designing our whole scheme around around Tom Brady at that point. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see how he progressed. Um, the person we did design around was Drew Brees. So we also, Drew Brees was also back in that era, right? Um, Purdue in the late 90s. And uh, he was somebody that you took notice of. He was setting, uh, Purdue's office in that time was very different than any, a lot of what you saw in college football. As I mentioned, run first, pound the ball. Purdue was spread the ball out and get short passes and, and get as many yards after the catch as you can or yak. Um, so we played Tom, um, Drew Brees twice, beat him twice. That was exciting. Um, he, at the time, uh, in the second game that we played him, set the all-time record for a number of pass attempts in a game. He threw the ball 82 times against us. That is Holy outs- cow. It's an outs- amazing number. I was looking it up um, not too long ago, and... From an old webpage from 2013, it said 11 records that'll never be beaten. And that was like on the list. Well, it was the show that later in that year, somebody actually did beat that and threw 84, 86 times. I was like, 86 times is a crazy amount. But the whole game plan around Jim Breeze was that as limiting that yak, the yards after catch. So it was like, we will let them like throw the ball, but we are going to tackle them within two yards of the catch every time. And eventually they're going to screw up enough where they will fumble or we will get the interception and we will, you know, take advantage of that and go forward. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, he, he, he had, you know, over 50 completions, which was also a record at the time, but we got just enough balls that got tipped and picked off or, and we controlled the ball for the rest of the game and kind of pounded the defense that we ended up winning those games, even though he had, out, I mean, amazing numbers in those in those football games. So wow. um, maybe that is like the whole limiting risk, right? They can catch the ball as much as they want, but as long as you tackle them, they're not going to get a touchdown. <laughs> Hard to yeah, prevent them to catch the ball at all, right? 
Well, yeah, especially back then. I mean, it was like it was such a different system of offense than you would see in a regular a regular way. So, yeah, it's definitely prevention versus mitigation, right? You know, you're, yeah, you, 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 you lessen the consequences, but it, but it goes yeah. into an overall strategy or concept of of how you're approaching the problem. Um, I think one thing I wanted to bring up too is you just uh, mentioned how Mr. Brady in college, you guys didn't plan around him. But then he goes to the NFL, and it's a different context, and it becomes a different thing. He develops as a player. The game is different mm-hmm. in the NFL than in college. There's all sorts of other things that happen. And I think we can talk about parallels with that with your career. So you decide to move from engineering to theater, and mm-hmm. then you get back kind of into engineering. through. So I, I want to talk about it's, in my mind, a different game to design a robot for a manufacturing cell within a warehouse or than to design a Cirque du Soleil set um, with all sorts of uh, technological things that you're not supposed to see because you're, you're trying to suspend reality. You're asking the audience to pretend like your reality is not happening right now and we're going to make mm-hmm. a new world for you. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about what your, what kind of shows did you work on? What kind of, what kind of, uh, devices did you uh were you involved with and 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 how does safety play into that right great question so um the show the Cirque du Soleil show specifically that I I had the most impact on was Zed which is now closed but it was a a show that was in Japan um that it was a sit-down show that they did over there Um, and the majority of the acts for Cirque du Soleil that require stage automation or performer flying effects. And that's really where a lot of my expertise comes in is in that is in the suspension of humans for a performance aspect um, in front of an audience. So the uh, Cirque du Soleil, unlike a lot of uh, a traditional theatrical applications, there's for a lot of what they do, there's not that illusion of flight like a lot of times you'll see the wires they, they you know that this is an acrobatic event or something of, the, of, of that nature um there are other times where that is not the case um in, in Cirque du Soleil but in general general the you know that they're on wires doing this right um you can suspend d- disbelief sometimes if you've seen um some of the flying scenes or fighting scenes in uh, Cirque du Soleil's Ka, which are just outstanding um, pieces of um, choreography and, and visual spectacle. The the that's probably as close as they get to the illusion of flight, even though it's clear they're not actually um, doing that. Like when you're, tr- as opposed to when you're trying to play Tinkerbell or Peter Pan, right? The, the, there's truly a illusion of flight that you're trying to to. Um, satisfy. So a lot of those events, a lot of the effects that we do for those shows are, are individual components of a, a grander system. So a performer flying hoist, whether it is a single pick or whether it has aspects that where it is a three or four point bridal system that goes down to the performer to move them in a three-dimensional space. Um, those are individual systems that you design the safety space specifications for, um, and then, then that are incorporated into the larger picture of, of all this, whether it's, um, 
the safety nets that are that are sometimes also part of that, whether it's we had a high wire tension rig that needed to put like many tons worth of tension onto the the high wire bar. So because it didn't because it needed to. It couldn't be there the whole show. So you have to like, connect it and then you have to like put enough tension on it. I mean, the system needs to read that in order to, for it to be safe for the performers to utilize it. Because if it is under tensioned, it's going to be like too springy and they're not actually going to be able to do what they want to do. If you over tension it, you potentially lead to failure. And that would also be really bad. <laughs> um, um, so there's the, the systems were, were pretty varied, but in general, the, the hoists that are used to do these performer flying rigs are typical across um, all performer flying hoists in our industry. So there's a drum in which takes up the flexible lifting media, whether it is a uh, wire rope or whether it is a piece of synthetic fiber rope that is that is flying the performer or motivating the performer up and down um, is connected to a shaft that goes to a gearbox and a drum brake, um, a securing brake on that side. Uh, the gearbox connected to a motor, which also has a, a brake on it and uh, dual encoders to make sure that you're monitoring both the position of the performer as well as the position of the motor and kind of doing any air analysis with those two things ever deviate by a certain amount. You know that something's wrong in the system. Um, but in general, the hoist is set up that's the generic generic makeup of a performer flying hoist um which was probably more than 60 percent of the effects in that show um and and that makeup is pretty common across all of the applications that you do for performer flying or some of them are insane um we had a hoist that would fly a person at 100 feet per minute uh, 100 yeah um which, I mean, that's, I'm saying that wrong. Um, it'll, it will do it at 100 feet per second. There's a whole different scale wow. there, right? 100 feet per second is crazy fast. Um, and in some of these systems, that's when you start getting into the maximum G-forces that a person can have applied to their body in a safe manner, um, both from an acceleration standpoint, but equally as dangerous as the deceleration standpoint. So if you're flying a person um down at 100 feet per second and the machine faults right in a normal in a normal application like you want it to stop but you have to when something or a person specifically the load on the end of your your device is in is a person who has eyes and a heart that um, those sudden jerks and stops can affect, you have to design the hoist to not stop instantly <laughs> um, uh, and kind of can take those things into consideration. So that's that's part of the other work I've been working on. I, I was part of the initial uh, performer flying standard for our industry, for the to United States. Um, and a lot of um, engineering style work and, and pulling information from other standards kind of brought that into that aspect of it, but right, those extreme hundred feet per second is pretty extreme in terms of performer flying hoist. Um, does does change your dynamic of what 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 you need to contemplate when it comes to functional safety or just safety in general, and how much of that can be done mechanically, and how much of that is is done inherently in the. I mean, how much of that is done in the 
control system. Yeah, that's a really that's very surprising to me. I mean, when you're in the show and you're watching um, people look like they're moving fast, but 100 feet per second. I mean, I don't know exactly, but I know 88 feet per second is 60 miles an hour. So what does that run out to be? You're, you're going 70 miles. This person's going 70 miles an hour. And in kilometers, I think that's a billion. I don't know the ratio. <laughs> yeah. Very, very high. I don't have to deal with those very often. Um, but yeah, it's it's fast, right? And, th- and those are unique, specially purposed applications, right? They're u- very unique hoists that were, were, were more used in the stunt industry than any kind of regular performer safety or um flying things. So for instance, um, sometimes they're, they're, they're often not used for a strict vertical hoist as well. In order to have something moving in a three-dimensional space with bridle lines, the bridle lines have to, are, are moving faster than the person is, right? Because of the, the angles of it all. So that comes into play a lot with those. Not all the hoists are that fast. Like 15 feet per second is, is usually a, a pretty fast hoist. Most performer flying hoists are, are more in the three to four foot per second range. Yeah. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, what you've just talked about the, what's intriguing to me is the response times on these hoists, right? You talked about acceleration profiles, deceleration mm-hmm. profiles are what my physics professor would say. It's still acceleration. It's just in the other direction. <laughs> Negative acceleration. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, both of those you're, you're allow you're only allowing certain things. But the response times on a safety system, when you do detect that something's wrong, um, what types of response times are we talking about there? And then how do you make a decision about taking it to a safe state? That's a that's a great question, right? And and, and it's dependent on the application that, that you're doing. Um, for some of those, you're going so fast that the that you inherently in the systems, um, well, at least at this time, would get deviations solely from flex um, in 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 the in the system. So, it, you honestly, sometimes have to have the window a little bit larger um, mm-hmm. for that deviation or that calculation to make sure that those two things happen. Um, there's also considerations based on what type of encoder systems you're using, because if you're using Oftentimes we would be using an absolute encoder, um, something like a an SSI encoder for the for for the position of the performer, uh, and then the motor encoder would be something else. So there's those calculation time that has to happen inside of that. Um, more and more of those systems now are being done in uh, in traditional or dedicated safety systems. Where back when we were doing a lot of this, we were having to kind of devise our own systems to kind of make sure that, okay, we're doing this check. We should be also doing this check in, in other locations. So a, a secondary device that was thrown into the, in the mix to make sure that the first one um, is working properly. Um, so I, I wish I could give you a, a great answer on, oh, it's five milliseconds, but uh, uh, the, yeah, re- the reality is I don't, I don't know what those, those, those timeframes are. Um, are that we are doing this with. Well, I do like how you brought up this error banding, the tolerance, because you don't want false uh, false positives, right? False trips, because that's an unsafe right. situation as well. Yeah, some other parts, right? So a lot of the, um, I brought this up during the training with, with, with Stephen is, right, knowing your safe state and also the, you know, the monitoring, whether it's, you know, one out of two, two out of three voting systems that are actually pretty common now. Um, 
in these large sit-down applications where it's financially there's a financial hardship involved in a in a false positive right if you have a pressure sense sensor sensing the hydraulic pressure in the lift at ka right and that that sensor fails if it's only one of them the show like has to stop and the casino loses millions of dollars a night for every time they don't have a show in the, in the space, right? So it's a like three. I, I heard a number from them once that if, if it's dead for a night, it's a three million dollar loss for them, um, which is a huge number in terms of entertainment value. Like you don't you don't see that very often. So often they'll do two out of three systems, right? Like they'll know like you that two of the sensors have to say that there's an error before it's, it shuts down. So that if there was a single error in a sensor, that would be it would be notified, and you could rec- you could see that. But that would then be checked at the next like after the show to make sure that there's not a problem. Um, yeah. And that 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 level is not common across all our ears of uh, what I've seen in functional safety, but it does come up a lot more in those sit down shows that are they're going to be there for a long time, um, like Ka from Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, I think that's. Uh you know, the advantage of the two out of three architecture is a lower spurious trip rate, right? And the other industry where you see it a lot, and I wouldn't have thought this, right? Stage performers and, you know, uh, batch chemical processes, right? In the chemical engineering world, you know, if you you are going to make a certain amount of whatever particular substance you're going to make, it's not like you just turn it on and off. There's several chemical things, chemistry people can tell you all about this, right? that have to happen in a specific order with certain ratios for certain times at certain temperatures. So if you get a spurious trip, uh, then you shut down that whole process and that entire process may take weeks to run. And so now the revenue for the whole place is shut down because you, your safety system tripped it off. Right. So, uh, that's, that's interesting that those two use this, they've got the same thing. A, your entire business case is greatly impacted by your safety system not accidentally tripping because it it made a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need high reliability for the person, uh, but you also need high reliability for the business side of it as well. Okay, so you're um, you're with Cirque du Soleil for a while. Um, well, I, I did. I was with Fisher's Technical, where we worked Technical, with Cirque du Soleil right. and a bunch of other places for a while. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So for me, the non-theater person at all. All makes it. You know, I actually, I actually have a friend who's a uh, a theater professor as well. He's a really good friend of mine, but we're like total opposites in a lot of ways. Um, and he, he's got a great story too about how he was doing something, and then he quit school at UCLA to go be a circus clown with Barnum and Bailey for a couple of years. And it made me think of it when you said you stopped engineering to go do over to theater. Like, what did uh, what was the, <laughs> what was the response of your other? Uh, advising type mentor people in your life when you decided I'm not going to do engineering, I'm going to do theater. Uh, there were a lot of questions about that. Like, how are you going to make a living doing that? What's like, what, what are the career paths going forward? Um, and there, there was a lot of questions. Um, the advisors from the theater side were all like, yeah, we can totally make this work. You're going to do fine. The advisors that were from um, engineering didn't quite get what I was, what I was doing. Um, but that's perfectly reasonable. They don't know what's, um, it's a, it's a unique field. Let's put it that way. And 
my mom was like, whatever makes you happy. Like, go do, go do that. Um, so it was, it was a, it was a, an, an important moment in my life, that kind of that transition, but it, I just felt so right. And, um, I'm glad I fell, followed my gut and kind of went that way. Yeah. It obviously worked out for you. It sounds like you've created quite a niche for yourself. Uh, you know, what's interesting if you, you know, they say that people who are creative, who are into the arts, um, tend to be high in a personality trait called openness, right? You're open to new experiences and new things and mm-hmm. you're, that you get fed off of that, right? And then people who tend to be in engineering tend to be high in conscientiousness, which is like, I like to have things in order and in the right place and that sort of thing, right? Um, when I'm talking with you here, I don't know you well at all. It seems like you have kind of both. like, you, and, and that's kind of what's given you this niche in the, the, the world that you're in now. You're doing engineering work. You're doing getting things in order, making things proper, but you're also kind of making these really interesting new things. It seems like a really rewarding place that you've made for yourself. So how do you like my psychological assessment? I'm not a psychologist. I don't know anything <laughs> about this. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, I feel that that's pretty, that's pretty accurate, right? I think the, I'm definitely open to new experiences and new things. I love, I love exploring and kind of seeing what's possible. That's one of the beauties or benefits of my current job as a faculty member. Your role is about half your time is, is supposed to be dedicated to research, which is really just thinking about what could I possibly do? Like what, what's cool? What's, what's new? What, what things can I explore and kind of develop um, without the, without the risks of profitability and getting fired if your idea doesn't work? I try this. Oh, it didn't work. Oh, but guess what I learned? How can I incorporate that going into the futures? It's one of the beauties of the academic system in the U.S. right now. There are some downfalls associated with with the tenure process, but the the freedom or to explore and research in areas that have high reward but may not have a high success of um, success rate is really rewarding to me as a, as a person. Dan, uh, would, would you consider yourself more an art producer an artist, if you will, or an engineer? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. When I'm describing myself to colleagues, even here in, at the university, I, I describe myself as like working at the intersection of art and engineering, um, kind of both of those things. So, um, I have a very technical mind. Um, in many ways, I design technical solutions to um, enable new modes of storytelling. So it's it, it's hard to kind of differentiate between the two for me. Um, and I think that's the best answer I can give you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you have really unique uh, job and that overlaps those two, right? Usually, you mm-hmm. know, when... In my work, I would just say I'm an engineer. I wouldn't even consider an artist, right? But there is some art in designing safety systems and, and you know, looking at the different perspectives of things. But you do it in a whole new lens of, you know, actual theater productions, right? Yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm always trying to, to figure out the next thing, right? Figure out where, where technology is leading us what what possibilities there are for us to continue to 
provide interesting stories um, and ways to tell stories that individuals can kind of feel and grow in the human experience. Yeah. I think that's interesting too, because uh, uh, it seems like people change too. It's not just that the, you can't tell the same story through, like for instance, I'm thinking about safety in theater, right? So <clears throat> theater, it's got a long history of unsafety, I'll say, right? Like, like uh, I'm thinking about uh, the Globe Theater, right? You know, burns to the ground kind of thing, because I think they were trying to fire a cannon in the middle of it during a play or something. Isn't that? Yeah. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot of theater, theater burning down um, throughout the course of history. That's for sure. Yeah. So, but if you try to take the same story then and tell it now, like, well, that's a perfect example, I guess. Nobody speaks that version of English anymore. And it's really hard for your audience to get at that. So you have to modernize it, tell the story in a new way, tell the story because the audience has changed. The, the fundamental underlying humanity of it may not have changed but the audience has changed the way you tell it has changed is that that's kind of what i'm hearing you say is that accurate or yes what? yes I, I think so and i think that's what you know a lot of my research has been investigating is that society now it, the technology advancements in society are, are advancing faster than they ever have before in history right uh and people are so used to getting having technology in their lives now that um, in some ways going to a theater that is, that doesn't have that feels like a, like a jarring, jarring experience. And that, that juxtaposition could be good or it could also be turning off. So for me, I'm, I, I like looking at ways in which we can bring that technology in the audience to potentially engage a new audience that we wouldn't otherwise have had in a theatrical experience. And theatrical experiences for me are threefold, that it needs to have a story. It needs to be telling a story. It needs to have um, somebody embodying character, um, and it has to be presented in front of a live audience. So, or, or it has to have an audience that is live, doesn't have to be presented in front of an audience. But the intention being like those three things are core to me and there are, and I like looking at ways in which we can um, bring new audiences in using this technology with that inside of that same framework and lens. You know, it's a long tradition of innovation. I think people think a lot of invention and innovation happening in engineering for practical things, you know, moving things around or what have you. Um, but I, I, I rewatched a documentary that's one of my favorites from uh, Werner Herzog, right? He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And he's got this one called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Have you seen Have you seen this before or heard of it? No. If you haven't, um, so uh, you'll see why I'm talking about it in a minute. Using technology to tell stories, right? So this cave um, in the 90s, 1990s, uh, when you were playing football, probably high school, middle 90s, not, not college. Uh, there were some French cavers, spelunkers or whatever, who were trying to find new caves in this mountain. And so they're walking along and finding cracks in the surface of the rock that's there and feeling for air movement coming out of it. And that would be indicative that there's something inside of there. Mm -hmm. So they found one and they excavated it pulled aside all this rubble and I don't know if they 
cut into the rock or anything. And they made an opening or re- revealed an opening that was already there, but it was covered. And they walked inside and they found this cave system that is like one of the largest caves in the world. Or I don't know if it's in the world, but it's a very large cave system. And the more they moved back, there were paintings on the cave, handprints. There were charcoal drawings of woolly rhinoceros, woolly mammoth, bears, uh-huh. horses. And they're all intricately done. And they started carbon dating these things. And they've, they saw that like the earliest ones are from 20, 30,000 years ago. And then 5,000 years later, somebody makes another one next to it. Right. And then another one next to it. And, I, and um, <clears throat> I'm not giving away any of the climax of the story or anything, but basically they think geologically that a, the cliff sheared off. There was a landslide that closed it and sealed everything in there. So they found like a flute. They found all kinds of stuff, but from very long ago. But the reason I brought it up, you're talking about using technology to tell the story. I think, Dan, one of your ancestors was there because on this wall, (laughs) on this wall, uh, there's a drawing of a, I want to say a rhinoceros, right? A, A woolly rhinoceros. And it's got these... Like it's drawn, the main drawings, very, these are high quality drawings. These aren't like caveman, what you would think of caveman drawings. These are very high quality drawings. They use the shape of the rock to give a 3D effect. There's, there's, it's very, very well done. But you see that they've also drawn the rhino in a couple of other positions right next to it. And at first you think, oh, did they mess up or whatever? No, they're trying to make movement because when you see a, when you would think of a fire, flickering next to this thing it would look like the rhino's moving so it's like early cinematography right really really amazing and so when i think about that that's a long tradition of people using technology to tell stories that mean something to the audience that's there and that's that's still what you're doing today so it's pretty pretty interesting Wow, I could listen to you talk all day. You should have a well, podcast. Well, that's, that's the goal. That's why I have a podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what other, the last podcast I talked about uh, horses behind, so that's less interesting. <laughs> Although there were horses too, and they, they had ho- the horses that they painted, they had like, you know, eight legs or something. But the reason, it's not like a kid who draws eight legs. <laughs> you know, yeah. the reason they're trying to show movement, right? Right. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. Um. So you're doing that now with these new technologies, bring them into theater to tell stories in a new way or the same story in a, to a new audience. Um, and you're trying to do it safely. Um, can I ask you um, what would be in your mind the biggest safety challenges that you would see in technical production of the new ways that you're trying to tell stories? Like what made you go and fly to Germany to take this class? Yeah. Right. What what was the driver? So I'm I'm seeing in over the last few years, both through some of the research I've been doing, but kind of observing how the industry is moving is in uh, a way where dynamic automation is becoming more prevalent in the entertainment industry, and dynamic automation, and how we would look at that is automation that is motivated that isn't pre-programmed, right? It is based on the movement or the interaction with some other element that is then providing motion or light changes in the system. So automation for is, I used to talk about automation 
specifically as stage automation, mechanical automation, where now I have a bigger um, umbrella in this dynamic automation where it includes anything that is triggered to be controlled automatically, um, whether that be the lights, the sound, the movement of a piece of scenery, or, or the flying of a performer in a space. Um, so a lot of the, this is becoming more and more common in the theater industry where I don't see it as common in other industries, right? If you're doing a car manufacturing plant, you're not monitoring the body position of the employee to control the machine. It could be, and it's actually very common, right? Like it's a good way for you to, like you can do motion capture on a person and then their arms become the arms of the thing that they're moving, right? But that's actually happening in production now in the entertainment world. Um, and that brings a whole new set of challenges from a functional safety standpoint that we didn't have to consider before, right? Oftentimes our movements were very trapezoidal motion profile, right? You can, you know, you start when somebody hits the go button, it ramps up, it goes to a certain speed, then it decelerates and stops at a certain position on the stage. Well, now, like if we're doing that start and then the motion in between those two endpoints is determined by how fast somebody on the stage is also walking across that stage such that they meet at the same point on the stage, um, you have to add a lot more inherent functional safety into the systems um, through the, the drive programming to ensure that the thing doesn't get a misread and take off and, you know, the person goes flying on their backside, right? So you're, you're looking at incorporating more of these functional safety elements in, in the initial design conception so that you have that all the way through the process so that you don't, uh, because you're not as controlled, it's not as predictable of emotion. So for a lot of what I've been doing, I did have been working with motion capture systems, um, specifically Microsoft Connect systems, uh, multiple of them, to dynamically control the flight of performer while they're in the air. So they, if they put their hands up, it indicates that they want to go up higher and they the hoist lifts them higher. If they put their arms down, they, they start flowing. So like this, we use this a bit when we were doing uh, a proofing test concept test of a production of Alice in Wonderland. So when Alice is falling down the hole, like she was in control of her own position on the stage based on her motion, like her movement of her arms, like a system like that requires the, a lot more consideration and functional safety than you would have um, in what was historically a, a performer flying system because of the need for unintended sudden acceleration is higher and the the upper limits that the system doesn't exceed um, are higher where normally in a system like that you would set parameters inside of the drive that prevented the person from exceeding certain places in the in the flight path well now that that based on some risk analysis didn't seem sufficient for for this application because you're constantly changing a lot of the dynamics associated with with those with the the system while you're moving. So there's a lot more um, when we we're talk about these dynamic systems, especially entertainment. There's a, a greater need for an awareness of functional safety um, and the specifically dealing with maintaining a safe state for the performer. Uh, than we've ever really had in the entertainment industry before. I mean, that wouldn't be 
specific to the entertainment industry. Anytime I think when we are talking about dynamic automation at systems that are are more controlled by an individual and like combining systems, um, the more there's a need for that, the, the high level of functional safety assessment. I think that uh, that's a, that is a use case I have never heard of before. <laughs> so that, that's, yeah. and it, uh, it's, I mean, I'm just imagining Alice, you know, falling down the rabbit hole or whatever it is, and she's controlling her, her rate of fall, but you also have the safety system has to know when am I, when is she commanding a movement and when is she just having a reflex or when is she, because yeah. you know, yeah. you <laughs> people, you know, you, you know, uh, go shout in somebody's ear and see how much control they have over their body, right? It, it's automatic. It doesn't. So right. Exactly. And that's, and that's where those, you know, those, right. Designing it such that, um, they're smoothing out there. You're taking multiple mm -hmm. cycles. You're also, um, limiting the, the jerk in the system based on, based on those sudden movements, right. A sudden movement like that would be unintentional, Whereas, whereas something that you can see a progression through is actually um, something that you would want that performer to have that authority to move in that way, if that's what their character would be doing in that environment. Yeah, I think um, Stephen, I want to ask you about something too because he just brought up another uh, something that it's obvious how technology is flowing from entertainment to the rest of the safety world, right? Uh, we kind of think of it the other way around, but it seems like lately, because you've used some motion capture systems, right? For the evaluation of safety systems, but where did those come from? It came from the entertainment world, right? So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we used um, for the capturing of uh, moving, moving objects and making sure that uh, what we were tracking uh, was really where we were saying it was going to be using the uh, motion capture, what we called mocap, um, and had all the rigid bodies and the triangulation um, with capturing the center of gravity of all these different uh, different types of pieces. Um, and so, and I remember when we were first getting introduced to the system, they said, "Yep, yeah, this is this is the same stuff they use whenever you know they're creating animations um, out of people doing different objects, right? They're wearing the the different." Uh, uh, points on their body and they're making different um, different movements, right? So it's pretty crazy how much is actually flowing out of the theater industry to other parts. Yeah, a lot of that's the right the the film industry kind of using those technologies. Where it used to be a lot of those suits that had balls on them, and now there are a lot more suits that are triangular triangulization. So they're 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 picking out those differences, um, but. Yeah, it's interesting to see how that that transitioned into your application there. That's a, uh, um, that's cool, cool to hear. Well, good. Well, we've been um, talking for almost an hour now, and Stephen tells me that most of our guests that's about all they can take from me. So, I'm <laughs> I'm going to kind of wrap us up by, uh, you know, first of all, thanking you for coming out, Dan, and I hope that we can talk again because this is. Uh, a pretty new field for me to think about. Uh, they've been two separate worlds in my mind for a long time, uh, you know, arts and uh, safety. And so I think it'd be interesting to talk again sometime. But I do want to ask you something that's our closing question for um, 
many of our guests. And I told you beforehand that as soon as I came to this again, you would, you would maybe not. So um, what is the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? Or what is the most dangerous thing that you will admit to? Um, and you can change the names to protect the guilty if you, uh, if you, if you so desire. Unless it's about wow. Drew Brees or Tom Brady. Then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have I don't have those examples that are would be dangerous per se. Um, I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, um, but most of them, as I mentioned, I don't think I could feel comfortable sharing here. I think the big one for me, and I, and it may seem silly, but I grew up in an era of playing football where you toughed it out, right? Like if you got hurt, you toughed it out. Oh, you got a ringer. Oh, you just get out there the next play. And there was a series of time in, in high school, I believe where I played with concussions in a regular basis. And I'm glad that there's an awareness of that. Now I'm, I have not seen any problems um, associated with it. As of yet, I do have some colleagues or friends from football that, do have symptoms and, and problems associated with it. And uh, I think I just wanted to take this moment to call out that those things are real. Mm-hmm. We got to take it seriously. They do have long-term effects and that we do need to um, protect. Like it is, is appropriate for people to be concerned about their well-being um, that, that play high impact sports and that get multiple concussions. I, I think what we saw Speaking a little bit boldly here, what we saw this year from the NFL and the what appeared to be multiple concussions and then people like people going back on the field is yeah. just horrifying to me. Like safety is player safety, people say the safety of individuals is far more important than any aspect of a, a game that we play in a regular way. Yeah, I, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, there's some technological things that I'm surprised haven't been implemented yet, such as, um, you know, we have accelerometers. Why don't we have accelerometers in the helmets? Right. They have a lot of the, the, uh, I was part of the, the athletic board here at the UW Madison a number of years ago, and they informed us they were doing studies. They had helmets that had impact sensors and things like that associated mm-hmm. with them to do a lot of concussion related study. Um, and it has, uh, been used to improve helmet design and things of that nature. Why isn't it commonplace in all of them? That's a, um, a good question, but I think they have been, they've been utilizing some of that information to make it happen. Um, so that's encouraging. It is. And there is a lot of work. I have, um, uh, my, one of my sons plays, uh, high school football in Texas, which is a big deal. And I'll have to say they, um, they watch the concussions closely but there's still a problem of the evaluation process and a lot of it is the player himself kind of reporting things about how he feels or how he does things or what have you so there's a subjectivity to it that is that is hard to pin down um and i think in the cases that you're talking about they bring out a doctor to make a determination now there's questions of well which doctor is qualified. Should it be a doctor paid by the team? Are they really independent from this decision or should it be a doctor paid by the league or how does all that work? And 
Um, these are real, real questions. It certainly is true. It's also not limited to football as well. I have another son mm-hmm. who's a wrestler and he's got a concussion as a wrestler. I have friends who are soccer players. Apparently soccer players give them quite a bit. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're hitting a hard object with their bare head on a regular basis. Yep. Yeah. And sometimes other people's heads with, yeah. uh, <laughs> when they both go up at the same time. Yeah. So there's, a. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, definitely a serious thing and something we should continue to to look at and and make this make decisions around too. I think in my case, um, well, since you asked, you didn't ask, right? In my case, I'll I've ask. had people. Go ahead, I'll ask. I've had people say, you know, uh, why do you let your sons play these sports? And I think in my case, my decision has been. Uh, I would rather teach them to make the decision about what risks they're willing to take for what goals they have than to teach them to um, be fearful about being open to new possibilities and things, right? Yes, there is Mm -hmm. risk. There's risk with anything. I also tell them it's much riskier for me to give my sons the keys to a car than to go onto a football field uh, or or wrestling field, uh, Matt, right? Um, so again, these are these risk-based decisions that we make every day and someone has to take responsibility for them. As a parent, you take responsibility for your children as a coach or as a teacher, you do as well. Uh, and then ultimately we as a society take responsibility for it. Whatever decisions we make, the outcome of those, we need to take responsibility for caring for the people who are the result of those decisions as well. Yeah, that's my soapbox. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, thank you as well, Stephen. I'm glad uh, this this first time together happened. We'll have to do another one again soon. Great. Thank you. I look forward to it.